to this week's GES Colloquium. We've got a great uh, speaker today, um, and I'm going to let Nolan introduce her in just a minute. But before that, I wanted to let everyone know that next week, our speaker will actually be on campus, and so we're going to have a hybrid um, colloquium. So if you're on campus and are able to pop over to Poe Hall, room 202, join us in person um, for uh, next week's colloquium. So. Okay, Nolan, you ready? Yep. Uh, okay, welcome everyone. Um, for those that don't know, my name is Nolan Spiker. I'm a first year doctoral student in NC State's PhD program in communication rhetoric in digital media. And I'm also a member of um, the Ag Biofuse cohort three. Um, I'm very excited today to introduce Dr. Faith Kearns as our colloquium speaker. Um, Dr. Kearns earned her bachelor's degree in environmental science, geology, and political science from Northern Arizona University and her doctorate from the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, she has been an active science communicator for more than 25 years, focusing primarily on issues of water, wild, uh, wildfire, and climate change. Um, over the course of her career, Dr. Kearns has developed projects at the Ecological Society of America. She served as the AAAS Science and Policy Fellow at the U.S. Department of State. She's managed a wildfire research and outreach center at UC Berkeley, and she's worked at the intersection of science and policy advocacy efforts at Pew Charitable Trusts. Uh, she currently holds a position at the California Institute for Water Resources, and in 2021, she published her first book, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication, um, which has seen great reviews and has been featured in a long list of media outlets. Uh, so without further ado, I'm gonna hand things over to Faith, who will take us through her work, and then we'll open some things up for, for Q&A. So Dr. Kearns, the, the floor is yours. All right, thanks so much, Nolan. All right, so um, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for the introduction um, and for, for having me today and for everyone behind the scenes who makes all of these kinds of things happen. I know it's not a uh, labor-free process by any means. So um, as Nolan said, I'm Faith Kearns. I'm a scientist and science communication practitioner with the California Institute for Water Resources, which is located in the University of California's Division of Ag and Natural Resources, which is also known as our Sort of UC um, Cooperative Extension branch, uh, similar to NC State. So, um, and, and the Cooperative Extension work I do very much informs uh, my perspective on my work. Um, and so today I'm going to talk sort of about a, a different way of communicating science than what's been talked about for most of my career, which um, I've spent doing communications for longer than I've been a scientist um, and doing science communication since it was since before it was called science communication. Um, so I've practiced in academia the nonprofit sector, um, government on, on many environment related issues. Um, and thank you for, to Nolan for getting wildfire instead of wildlife, because I would say in 90% 90, 90 of the talks that I give, people read it as wildlife. Um, so uh, I know uh, the topics that I'm covering are not exactly the same as those that are uh, that you address in the center. But at the same time, I do hope that um, some of the lessons I've learned and uh, and things that I can share uh, can be of, of of uh, interest in each of everybody's unique contexts. So um, I should be able to wrap up the formal part of this talk uh, by by 12.30 for you all. Um, and I'm just gonna give a little overview here. So everything is, that I'm talking about is covered in my book, uh, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication. And I'm just gonna talk about a very small subset of what's included there. So I'm, I'm gonna talk a bit about context um, and the sort of evolving practice of science communication lay out some of my ideas for a, a core set of tools that I think can get at least the folks that are interested in a sort of different kind of science communication uh, set off in a different way. And then talk a little bit about um, how we move forward. And I, I just want to express gratitude to everyone who spoke with me for the book, uh, whose words I can now uh, share with you. So 
Uh, just in terms of context, I always like to start in a really basic place, which is just talking about what I mean when I'm talking about science communication. I definitely find that a lot of disagreements about science communication come from uh, having different contexts that we're working in, just very different working definitions of what we mean by science communication. So for me, I have a very sort of broad tent definition, which is just communicating science with non-experts. However, I really like to strongly emphasize that is most of us most of the time, right? Um, there can definitely be a sort of insider sense within the sciences that we all get each other's um, science because we're scientists. And uh, I can definitely say after the past couple of years, right, being trained as an ecologist does not ren render me an epidemiologist. And therefore, I hope that we can all have some empathy for what it means to be the recipients of sort of science communication information, right? So. Um, Science communication also has a much longer global history. There are people doing really interesting work on that. Um, but for me, I really tried to focus on what I know, which is sort of the context of science communication in the last 25 to 30 years in North America, particularly in the United States, um, where we really have tended to focus on this idea of filling an information gap. So the very well-known deficit model. Um, and an enormous focus on very performance oriented approaches, right? Things like how to give a good talk, how to message, how to frame. Uh, those were really seen as the, 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 the tools that you needed to be a good science communicator. Um, and, and it often involved connecting elite scientists at elite institutions with elite journalists and um, decision makers also at elite institutions. So again, for most of my career, science good science communication was considered to be like an Ivy League faculty member talking with the New York Times or giving congressional testimony, um, I can say from my experience that there is, that's about 0.01% of what falls under what I consider science communication. So what I really argue is that what I would call a more ground level science communication practice has really existed at the same time, um, but for multiple reasons that I won't get into, um, it, it really has taken a very much a backseat to these more top-down approaches. Um, we all know, right, the, the sage on the stage model has proliferated. Um, but we really have found that, that of course, information is important. Um, I, I am not arguing against the value and importance of information at all, um, but on its own, it really doesn't offer that much of a theory of change. Um, I also realize that right now I'm sort of performing this role, so um, it is very difficult to get around. And yet I think we can do a lot more, a lot better. So. Um, the reality is that science communication is way more complex. Uh, people communicate with each other in, in very complex ways, places, configurations. And I think we all know this on some level. And yet many times, most of the time, I would say um, our science communication efforts don't really reflect that understanding, which makes a lot of sense because it's actually really hard. Our funding structures, our project structures, et cetera, are not really set up to deal with communicating science um, in, in a different way. But I do think that we are starting to see a real shift toward what I call relational or community engaged science communication, which is, again, much more about sort of the people we are in community with, the communities they're a part of. And I think the, the challenge is that this is a fundamentally different prospect in everything from sort of funding to um, to the skill set that you need to be a really good science communicator um, these days. So um, another big change I've seen in my career is that the people doing the work has changed vastly. Again, th this was long considered um, the domain of tenured faculty, right? But these days I would say many science communicators are in precarious positions, myself included. Um, they are interested in and often a part of various communities that have been marginalized within the sciences, whether by gender, sexuality, age, um, ability, many, many other factors. And this, this diverse group of people is changing science communication practice as they go, uh, including by say, challenging the notions of objectivity and advocacy in science. Again, that, that issue has a long history, uh, but I'm seeing more and more 
how this comes into play in science communication work. So Sada Kahanamoku, who's a doctoral student at UC Berkeley um, and is native Hawaiian, uh, wrote about the 30 meter telescope in Hawaii. To me, this debate is not about science versus culture. In my practice of science, the two are inextricably linked. I'm Kanaka Aoi and I do science because I am Hawaiian. I research out of Alohaina, a deep familial love for the land. Um, I would say in addition, many of these science communicators are very much less interested in relying on the idea of scientific authority and sort of intellectual distance as tools. They're instead very much interested in connection and consent. So Sarah Myrie, um, who is a climate and environmental scientist with the Reclaiming STEM Institute told me, for example, the paradigm of science communication has largely been about the appropriate presentation of scientific authority, which is about divesting from your own mortal and emotional and human connections. You are forced to perform respectability, to posture, and when you try to critique that posture or even just do things differently, you become the problem instead of the thing that's actually a problem, right? So here she's hearkening to words by the feminist scholar, Sarah Ahmed. Um, Again, the, the questions, approaches, outcomes that this sort of newer generation of science communicators are seeking are just very different. Um, many folks, again, myself included, live uh, in the same communities where they work, which I think uh, is a fundamentally different kind of science communication than that that sort of takes place outside of any direct ties to communities. So Mila Marshall, who's a doctoral student at the University of Illinois, for example, told me that um, when it comes to mis and disinformation, that um, emotional intelligence and cultural understanding are really key. So she said, you know, when you're trying to talk about difficult subjects, you have to understand you're asking people to acknowledge there's a chance something they believe to be true told to them by people they love and respect is wrong. We can provide accurate information, but there also has to be somebody standing in the gap prepared to support them through their emotions around how uh, it feels to be corrected. And so, um, you know, I think if, if we take what Mila is saying seriously, uh, it again would be something that would be a real game changer within the science communication field. And finally, um, I spend a whole chapter of the book talking about science communication careers, just because I do feel like we're at a real turning point um, at this stage, as, as most of you know, uh, most people with science science training in general will end up working outside of academia versus within, within it. Um, and the interest in science communication careers is increasing, whether as an entire uh, focus or as a, a strong part of most jobs outside of academia. Um, at the same time, the path to science communication training, much less a science communication career, is really not legible to most students. Uh, so, for example, Julian Reyes, who's now the Climate Hub's national coordinator with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, told me, I would have liked to have more science communication uh, train uh, as an explicit part of my training. I think graduate students are navigating the field in a piecemeal fashion that is too dependent on circumstances and a sympathetic advisor. And it's not particularly equitable, which I think is very, very true. Um, and I and I will say, if you think it's tough for grad students and, and early career folks, um, I am definitely finding out as a mid-career science communicator, uh, it's equally, if not more challenging at this stage. Um, many science communicators are are undervalued, underpaid, and underprotected. Um, and on top of all that, right, they are often discussing what are pretty emotional, contentious, and sometimes traumatic issues. So um, the things I work on, water, drought, wildfire, climate change in California. And then I think the issue that really has made a lot of science communication complexity legible to many, many more people, which is COVID. Um, I think it used to be fairly hard for me in some context to explain what I was talking about. There are many scientists who've never um, and science communicators who really have never thought about this piece of things or confronted, been confronted with any kind of contentious situation. I doubt that's true for the folks uh, here, um, but COVID definitely has made it so that people I think have a deeper understanding. Um, so to make this, this issue of emotion uh, and how it interplays with some of our dish, uh, issues and, and sort of contention less abstract, um, I wanna give a couple examples about that are very concrete around drinking water. So Sarah Wolf, um, who's with Royal Roads University in Canada works on issues of uh, uptake of drinking recycled water. And she says, human emotions are complicated. So talking about them is never easy, but given the many and multiplying stresses on our drinking water systems, it's time to stop 
stop ignoring how powerful and universal emotions such as disgust both help and hinder our water decisions, right? So she's basically saying we can focus on this sort of logical idea of how, uh, how valuable it is to drink recycled water. But if we don't address this emotional piece, we're really not going to get where we need to be in terms of people's acceptance. Um, Parisa Parsifar, who's now also a, a AAA science and technology policy fellow, is uh, trained as a psychologist at UC Riverside and had told me about some of her research that, you know, early experiences of disgust and fear are linked to water contamination beliefs and water or consumption behaviors among children. Although these might seem like individual issues, these emotions can have far reaching consequences. And here she's talking about things like um, uh, dehydration in schools because kids have these very real experiences of their water tasting disgusting to them. And we sort of have to uh, be able to deal with that on an emotional level. And so I think, you know, while these can be very challenging issues and situations, there there is also some happiness to be found in science communication work. So um, my, my colleague Malika Noko, uh, who hosts a podcast with me and is a, a professor of cooperative extension at UC Davis, for example, created something called Plant Love love stories with some colleagues, um, she says, because we just wanted to focus um, more on plant appreciation than science and just make it fun. It makes me feel joyful and light. It makes me feel like I can be funny. I have all these parts of my personality. I feel like I have to address for, suppress for science. But with this, I can be goofy and make puns and be a total plant nerd. And it's OK. So with that context for just sort of the changing um, landscape of science communication, I want to talk about the tools that I that I focus on on a book. So um, the middle section is, is uh, offers a chapter on relating, uh, a chapter on listening, one on working with conflict and another on understanding trauma. And so I'm just going to touch briefly on all four of those things. So basically what I am really proposing um, is something I would call relational or relationship centered uh, science communication with the idea that I think that we really face more of a relationship challenge of which communication is certainly a part. Um, but I think we've put the cart before the horse in terms of thinking of it as a communication challenge and not a relationship issue overall. So um, my idea is that we focus uh, more on how we relate to each other as equals rather than, for example, uh, pushing behavior change onto other people because we, the sort of objective experts, know best. Um, and, and that kind of relating, I think, invites different skills, including some of the things I'm going to talk about, uh, developing the ability to uh, listen deeply rather than speak perfectly, um, and, and also being able to work with things like emotion and conflict and trauma as they come up when you are listening well. And I want to acknowledge that relational work is present in many cultures, spiritual scholarship traditions. So um, black feminist scholarship, people like Bell Hooks have certainly done a lot of work in this arena. Um, many indigenous scholars from Kim Talbert to Zoe Todd write about work relationally. Um, Melanie Yahtzee, who is now an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, um, for example, uh, talked to me about the, the water is life movement and said with water is life, the word life in particular is about countering the politics and reality of death that resource extraction has brought to Native communities, including my own, Melanie is Navajo. Um, I call these relations of extraction, and that leads us into this radical politics of relationality based on Indigenous understanding of kinship and of simply being a good relative. And so in addition to those sort of cultural traditions, spiritual traditions, um, uh, many forms of scholarship, uh, there is a huge amount of relational work in many professional spheres. So for example, in law, medicine, psychotherapy, but, but many other fields, they have developed um, very strong professional relationship-centered approaches. Not everybody utilizes them. Um, there, there's a whole set of things we could talk about there, but I draw very strongly from these other fields because I definitely feel like we do not need to reinvent the wheel. So Theopia Jackson, who is a clinical psychologist and program director at Saybrook University, for example, told me about working as a relational psychologist saying, I can think of my practice relationally as a service model where I frame my efforts around being in service of others. That means I can't come at it from a place of being an expert with all the answers. Again, I think this is quite different than the approach that a lot of people learned when it came to science communication, where expertise was very much the thing that you are supposed to be offering. So 
Um, uh, the, the other tool I want to talk about is listening. So, um, I talked to a lot, a lot of different kinds of professionals about the idea of listening. Um, I talked with, for example, Rebecca Fenton, who is a pediatrician, um, and, uh, she is somebody who's been trained quite a bit in these sort of uh, medical humanities. And she says, you know, she was faced with a young patient who was not adhering to her medical plan. And, you know, her job, she says, became to just listen. And uh, what she found out was that this young woman had had been facing multiple traumas that included the death of her father um, shortly after her own surgery. Um, her mom had gotten remarried to a man that she didn't like. And she, uh, Rebecca says that, you know, just being able to sit and listen to what this teen was facing after her heart surgery um, made me think about what it means when we as doctors get too concerned about things like how closely a patient is following the advice we prescribe. It's important, but we can lose track of what we're here to do which is to support people in healing. And this is something I really appreciate from the medical side. There, there is a constant sort of touchstone uh, back to what we're here to do, right? Um, and she says, there are so many areas where just listening and relating uh, to patients is the answer. Um, and and uh, while listening is a beautiful practice, I think it's also really, really important, particularly in the hands of technical experts to recognize the ethical challenges of what can be a very extractive process. So uh, you Lambrinadu, who's an ethnographer now at Smith College, told me, um, and she's also the only person I know who's actually taught listening to um, engineering uh, students at the collegiate level, um, says listening is often diluted to become about empathy and compassion when we're talking about justice and accountability. How scientists and engineers listen is inseparable from questions of power because it can be done in ways that bolster community knowledge, but it can also be done in ways that overlook or distort community knowledge. Um, Yana did, has done a lot of work on the lead and water issue, which definitely informs how she thinks about these things. Um, when it comes to conflict, which is another tool in the book, um, it's really challenging topic because uh, while many people are conflict averse, other people absolutely love conflict. Um, whole professions are built around it, right? So um, what, I, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that it's really valuable to see these as two parts of the same coin, right? Like um, either loving or hating conflict gives it a lot of power. And I'm trying to argue for a more middle path um, where we increase our comfort with conflict, um, but I also want to say that it does not apply equally, right? This is a really challenging topic to talk about these days because there just is so much background conflict. But, um, you know, if you're, say, somebody who is in a relative position of power who is also extremely conflict avoidant, um, I would uh, say that you might want to try to stretch your conflict muscle a little bit uh, by learning to punch up. Uh, for example, um, like I said, it's a, it's a com complex topic, but I think in science communication, we really have trended, tended to treat conflict as something that can be defeated with information. And I think while that might be helpful, um, if you think about conflict in your own personal life, it, it's just not a big part of how it works, right? Um, and so one of my favorite experiences with conflict was watching a colleague of mine, Mark Thorne, um, who's a cooperative extension specialist at the University of Hawaii, go from extremely conflict avoidant um, to realizing that he needed sort of ethically to learn to be OK with it. Um, I, I was talking about some of what I'm talking about with you now, and he sort of went from feeling like climate change wasn't a topic he could uh, broach with the often conservative ranchers that he works with to feeling like he actually really had an ethical obligation to. So he says, you know, the consequence of avoiding talking about the effects of climate change on ag production has too many negative consequences for the people I work with. I now see it as a professional and ethical obligation to talk about what can be difficult topics. And I have to trust that the long-term working relationships I have are strong enough to handle it. Um, again, a really uh, valuable part of thinking about working relationally. Um, and finally, uh, I talk a little bit about this idea of just understanding trauma, which is a fairly widespread issue these days. And I think it does have a large, uh, a huge impact for thinking about how we communicate scientific issues, uh, particularly disasters, but I think many other things uh, where, where trauma has been present. Um, but I'm, I also, uh, well, I'll get into it in a second. Um, so Tessa Hill, who uh, works for UC Davis, um, uh, was affected by the Tubbs fire in Northern California in 2017, saying we awoke to friends asking us if we were evacuating. By daylight, we noticed some of the ash was as big as our hands and had legible writing on it. Other pieces, large
large pieces falling into our yard were burned fabric. The remnants of our community were falling from the sky. That fire erased our sense of safety, not just at the individual level, but across our whole county. It was a community scale trauma. Um, and Theopia Jackson, again, uh, was a super helpful resource when it came to trauma, because I think, you know, it's a very ubiquitous word these days, and it's becoming quite controversial because of that. Um, as, as Dr. Jackson told me, you know, it's, it's incredibly important to be um, culturally responsible when thinking about trauma. It's, it's no one thing. Not everyone experiences the same. Um, not, not everybody accepts the label. I think it's really important to not um, label people as being traumatized if they don't accept that label. So she says, you know, part of the challenge with the trauma bucket is that it become it's become a catch-all phrase that means different things to different people. It's important not to position people who are dealing with significant issues as having something less about them. Um, and, you know, in addition to thinking about how trauma affects other people, I think we also have to think about how it affects those of us who are communicating about issues, uh, particularly year after year, um, who may also be experiencing uh, trauma of various kinds um, and be communicating about it. I can definitely say that as somebody who's both had to evacuate while communicating about a fire. Um, so understanding the way that that kind of trauma affects us and other people and then how that combination all works together, I think, is really important and a vastly, vastly under, under misunderstood and understudied aspect of science communication. So Miriam Kia Keating, who's a, a clinical psychologist at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, told me, you know, just understanding that there is a psychological impact from disasters is valuable. Recent events have opened my eyes to the personal distress natural science researchers and professionals have been experiencing because they are so attuned to the potential risks in our environment. Um, so just finishing up for today, I want to talk a little bit about how we move forward. So um, equity, inclusion, justice, um, I think if I were to rewrite this chapter today, I would push it more into sort of the liberatory context, but um, that wasn't really possible at the time. So one of the main issues that I've had with science communication uh, training in particular is that it has really tended to treat all communicators as if they're the same, offering a genetic generic set of tools that was really assumed to work for everyone the same, which to many of my earlier points is just absolutely not the case. Um, and it's been a real detriment to the field. Um, science communicators really are a very diverse group of people working with diverse communities. And I think that just fundamentally changes, again, uh, what we think of as good science communication practice. So Sergio Avila, who works with um, the Sierra Club in Southern Arizona and spent a lot of time uh, working with ranchers um, in Mexico and Arizona on issues around endangered jaguars, said he had to really shift how he um, communicates to be able to do the kind of work that he does, um, saying, you know, too often scientists create language that is actually meant to exclude people. We build ourselves up as the experts, and then we're supposed to learn to dumb down or simplify our language, which just leads to more feelings of superiority. Again, I think this is a really profound statement. Um, that if we were to take seriously, we, we would have to, again, really rethink what we think of as good science communication practice. And finally, just, you know, given that this work can be so challenging, I think it's uh, become increasingly important to talk about self-care, but rather than approaching it from a very individualistic perspective, I, perspective, I really tried to highlight people who are integrating um, self-care and collective care. So Lydia Jennings, who's now a postdoc at the University of Arizona, is a soil scientist, um, and she's super excited about all things uh, outdoors as well. Um, and she's really managed to integrate herself into what she describes as a indigenous uh, trail running scientist. And she says, I love to be outside. I love learning more about the world every day. And I'm also committed to being an active part of a more just future. For me, science is about service, particularly for marginalized communities. So, you know, what I've described here is just the tip of the iceberg. And I, I end the book uh, really with a question, uh, which is just the same question I'll post to you, which is just what more is possible, right? Uh, the field of science communication, in my opinion, had been stagnating for quite some time. And I think that we can do a lot better, a lot more. And I'm already starting to see uh, so many people uh, 
really reimagining uh, what science communication and engagement looks like when it is more relational and just. And um, with that, uh, I will stop for now and leave you with some information about how to stay in touch with me. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking with everyone. So thank you for your time this morning. So with that, I will stop my screen share and on my gallery view so I can see everyone. All right. That was really great. Thank you so much. Uh, okay. If you have questions, use the raise your hand function or type it in the chat. Um, and we'll just give a minute to let people gather their thoughts um, together. Sounds good. Um, and while we're waiting for the first question, do you want to tell us where we can buy your book? Yes, you can buy it anywhere you buy books. <laughs> um, and you can also buy it at Island Press. Uh, if you use the code HEART, you get 20% off. And on any given day, I have no idea whether that makes it cheaper or not because they go on, they go on sale everywhere all the time. So um, <laughs> hard to say. Okay. It's also available as an audio book. So there you go. Oh, nice. Um, okay, Jason has a question. Hi, Faith, um, and thanks so much for coming to visit us. Um, my question for you is, have you received or experienced pushback from more standard modes of, of science communication from people who have established the kinds of you know, guidelines and how-tos and this is what good presentations look like and things like that? Do you feel resistance from them? Um, and what has that looked like? Yeah, no, thanks, Jason. Good to see you. Um, uh, yeah, so it's been it's it's been interesting. <laughs> um, I, my feeling is that a lot of the folks who have championed those methods realize their shortcomings at this point. Um, I definitely um, I see a lot of shift within a lot of organizations. And so they're there. Some of them are already there. However, I can give you know, just just recently I was uh in a discussion with, with someone from a, actually from the Yale Climate Communication Center. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see that there was definitely some pushback around my, I, my sense of how far say messaging, um, as a tool has gotten us. And, um, again, I think some of that argument comes down to context, right? They're, they are working at a sort of more global level and are thinking uh, at a way different scale than what I'm thinking about. And so my, my, the way I try to approach it is that I've just tried to create a broader tent about science communication rather than a this is the way I think it goes. What I'm trying to say is all of those things are there. They'll always be there. There will always be a focus on how to give a good talk. Um, but there's so much more that we could be doing. And so the way I'm thinking about it is as science communications, right? Multiple forms of science communication, just like within the medical sciences, where I, uh, medical training, where I think there's been a huge focus on sort of medical humanities and teaching doctors to listen. Not all of them uptake it. And that's fine. <laughs> if that's, if you don't want to work that way, don't work that way. But what I'm trying to put forward is a different, a different set of tools where um, what I've seen in my own career as a cooperative extension person is just that as um, if I were to say, just focus, focus on how to give a talk, good talk or how to message, um, I would be horrible at my cooperative extension work because basically what happens is the second somebody asks a question, you have to get off message. You have to learn how to like relate to a person. So I just think we're, we're really overlooking an enormous set of tools by focusing on this idea that we can just stand in front of a podium and deliver a message and never get off that message. So, um, so I'm happy, I'm happy to take the pushback. <laughs> okay, Nolan. Yeah, um, kind of, I guess, jumping off that point a little bit, um, I'm wondering if, well, first of all, thanks. I thought the talk was excellent. And I was wondering if like the the topic of, of mediation has come up very much. I mean, I think a lot of the context you're talking about, especially like high conflict, um, like in law and medicine or whatever, there's, you know, there's often a turn to like a sort of neutral third party to kind of mediate. And I'm wondering if that is ever sort of, you know, in talking with all of the different sort of sectors that you talked with, if that ever came up and, and maybe if you see like science communication 
practitioners as that role or, or just kind of where you see mediation in all of this? Yeah, so one of my um, very good friends and dear collaborators over time is a, a lawyer, a clinical a clinical practice lawyer who um, teaches at UC Hastings and teaches clinical law. And um, we've had a lot of conversations about this over time. So I interview her in the book. She talks quite a bit about some of these alternative dispute um, mechanisms, including mediation, but there's restorative justice, transformational justice, et cetera. So um, I definitely feel like those are very valuable tools. However, I will say, um, even within that context, there are people who think about what it means to work relationally within a mediation context, and there are people who don't, right? You can turn mediation into whatever you want to turn it into as well. It can be it can be very rote, um, or it can be relational. And so, um, so what I tried to emphasize in the book was regardless, these same tools about relating, listening, um, trust, all of those things still come up regardless of the kind of tool that you're using. So in terms of um, science communicators as mediators, um, I don't know. That's a tricky, that's a tricky question. I would not call myself a mediator. No, uh, but does that mean that would apply to everybody? I, I don't think so. Um, some people probably do see themselves as somewhat neutral arbiters. Um, I just given the issues that I work on, I think neutrality is a limited, um, <laughs> a limited framework. Uh, so, so what I try to think about much more is transparency, um, as I, t as I work on some of the cons the things that I work on, say water in California, being a, a neutral arbiter of information on water, California and water in California is just um, not possible. Or, or if it is, you're not doing anything very meaningful in my opinion. So to be honest about it. Okay. Uh, I think Kara had her hand up next. Thanks. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for that great talk. And I can't wait to, buy your book and dig into it a little bit. Um, I'm not a science communicator by training, but what I do work in a lot is what I'm going to call like translational work from taking the results from science and distributing it to different audiences and actors to come up with different uh, solutions for sustainable projects. And the one thing that I've really struggled with is that I, I found that I have to switch my style of communication between different groups, whether it's discipline-based or whether it's other cultural-based, like I'm on some European projects. And so my, my normal like American style of, you know, we're like trained and bred to be like hyper-confident and very clear, that doesn't work well when I go <laughs> to, to Europe and then I have to be more soft-spoken and whatever. So, I feel like I've, I've found myself like, you know, switching, which is good because I feel like I'm more effective and I can reach people, but it's also, I feel like really exhausted. And I, I'm also feeling like paranoid half the time about whether I'm doing it right or saying it the right way. Am I offending somebody? And so I just wanted to hear from you as an expert, like whether you had any tips for us non-experts walking, you know, trying to walk in this territory and, um, having to switch all the time and what, how do you do this and what works for you? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for that question, Kara. That's actually a, a really, really good and astute question. So, um, you know, part, part of what I was trying to describe in the book was the actual labor of, of doing this work. Um, and so I didn't delve into it, um, in this particular talk, but there's basically a, a chapter focused on the labor issues that are involved here. Um, and I think one of the challenges about science communication is we have not taken it seriously as a labor issue and, um, that it really emerged as a labor issue for me as I talked to the hundred people or so that I talked to for the book. Um, I really tried to ground my work in the actual experiences of people who do science communication on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's where I think a very different picture of what the work is emerged than what people might think of it as. And so, um, so yeah, so that I have a couple of different responses to that. One of which is, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to, to be in a group of, uh, at the American Association of Geographers meeting where people did a book discussion. Um, and it was really interesting to see that several of the folks picked up very strongly on the labor, um, not only the labor involved in the day-to-day -day work, the emotional labor involved in the day-to-day -day work, but also just, you know, who's responsible for sort of 
um, changing the fields such as it is, but to focus in on the very sort of day-to-day thing. Yes. I think what you're, what you're noticing is very real. Um, and it's, it's part of how I started to write this book was noticing just how incredibly difficult it was and how much a sort of, um, ability to, to read the room came into my work in a way that, you know, nobody was talking about at all. And, um, and the difference between, relying on that ability to read the room and respond in real time, as opposed to this idea that you're just coming in, you're going to deliver your message and you're going to walk out, right? Those are two totally different skill sets. They really are. And so um, that's where I started to turn, started turning to like, what do people in other fields do? And I will say the medical field definitely offers a pretty rich practice-based literature about kind of how to do these kinds of things. It's not exactly um, the same as what we do as science communicators all the time because there's a, a much more one-on-one focus in a patient-doctor relationship or a lawyer-client relationship, but I still think a lot of it applies. And so um, the most I can say is learn to take that part really seriously <laughs> and get yourself the kind of training that, that you need, whether that, you know, for me, a lot of it came in, frankly, in contemplative practice training, uh, which again, a lot of people in the sciences don't necessarily like to talk about, but how you sit with difficult emotions in this kind of work is really key to, to being able to survive it for the long term, I think. Um, because uh yeah, I just want to validate that those experiences are really real. And that, and at the end of the day, you can end up very exhausted if you don't learn to sort of um navigate not taking things personally, which is really hard when you're putting so much of your heart and soul into understanding the dynamic in a room and then to walk away from it um and sort of go, well, that wasn't about me at all. But but that's largely true. Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're really on the right path. Um, and, and I do hope you find some tools in the book. There's a lot of people, um, from lawyers to psychologists, to doctors talking about how they navigate working through this very emotional work that they do. Is that, um, phenomenon Kara was talking about the way she changes how she talks. Is that the same as code switching? And I've heard that term used before. I mean, I, I, to me, I don't, I, I hesitate to use the, the term code switching because it's used in such a particular concept that, uh, context that has to do more with, um, you know, navigating things uh, across race. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't like to use it without a term, but I do think that there, you know, that's why I, I use the terminology of just sort of reading the room and, and sort of responding adequately to what's happening in the moment. But it, you know, what she's bringing up is so common. So for example, even, even within the context of say, working within California um, as a cooperative extension person, like I, I go from talking to, um, an LA Times reporter about, you know, climate change and water to showing up at like a community center on a Saturday morning uh, with people who are just concerned about drought, talking about water and climate change in California. Those are totally different conversations, right? Um, And so uh, being able to navigate those two very, very different contexts is really important. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think Amanda has her hand up next. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. I really loved your point about making science communication more of an act of service instead of an act of being an expert. How does that change the maybe your word choice or even the way you present yourself into mm-hmm. a group of people or a room? Um, how does that change maybe the way you prepare for those interactions? Very good question. So, um, so sorry, this keeps switching to like a giant view of my face every time I <laughs> go to answer a question. Um, <laughs> disconcerting. So, um, so yeah, so what, so I, somebody asked me a similar question and I, last week, and I think, um, one of the, the ways that I've tried to really change just how I think about my own role is for example, um, and, and I've actually talked with Jason about this a little bit before, and it, it's sort of an interesting idea of just what is it, what does it mean to talk about an audience, right? So it's so common um, in science communication, uh, writing, uh, training, et cetera, to say your audience, right? And, and I, I hate that terminology um, uh, because it's, um, 
you know, I think we could get into more nuanced understandings of audience, which is where Jason comes in. But I think for the most part in a very colloquial understanding, it's like this sense that you've got this, you know, set of people there just waiting to hear the wisdom that you have to impart. And at least for me, again, working very much in a community grounded sort of cooperative extension context, that's rarely ever the case that that there aren't, you know, that that people are, um, don't have a lot more agency than that. They're just sort of sitting. So, so basic changes I've made in my lifetime are I don't talk to people. I talk with them. Um, I, I don't ever use the term, uh, audience. I, I, you know, just to get away from that sense that I'm, um, there to impart something that people don't, you know, they, and, and they may not know it, but it's a collective, right? It's like, what do you know? And what do I know? And how do we talk about that together? And so I think kind of going into things just in that way, um, very much understanding yourself, um, as also a community member, I think has been really huge for me as well. Um, you know, again, some of the issues that I work on, I also experience, like I, I work on drought, I work on fire. I experience those things the same way every other person in California does. And so um, I may have some understanding. And, and then I think once you start to listen to people deeply, you do you, there's no other way to, to approach it anymore. You just realize how limited your own knowledge is um, in very, in many different contexts and things. So, um, so yeah, it just, it just, just those small changes start to snowball into a way of just thinking about your role very, very, very differently. Sure. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, I think it's something I've, I've thought about because I feel like you want to walk in with, um, Humility. I mean, you definitely don't understand all of the factors coming into play in the system you're looking at. Um, and just trying, trying to figure out how to word it though, because I feel like sometimes people do ask you very pointed questions, like what should we do in this scenario? And I just feel like I have to still figure out the way to maybe word it so that, you know, I'm confident in this based off, you know, my work, but there are other things at play here maybe yep. connecting them with other people as well to kind of broaden the solution pool. But I don't know. Yeah, no, you're, really you're totally, you're, yeah no, you're totally on the right path. I think it's, you know, it is, I mean, for me, part of it is just also deeply understand. I don't, I don't actually want to be in that position of responsibility to say, this is the way that you should, I, what sure. the hell do I know. So, I mean, I, so I think just the more that you, that you embody that perspective that really is like when you run up, may, maybe to a certain degree, you do know a set of things and you can offer that with humility, you know, but at a certain point, um, people, you know, because sometimes you do get yourself into situations where people, um, want a particular answer out of you. Right. So, so this, this gets super, um, complicated super quickly where, you know, people, um, in some ways you have to know if you're walking into a situation to be used for one thing, because that does happen where somebody wants you to come in and offer a particular solution. Uh, and that's the danger of some of the community engaged work is that you may not always know that you're being offered up in that way. And so that's where, again, I think humility comes in very strongly because, um, you want to make sure you're not, you know, that you aren't being utilized to, to deliver a particular message that somebody wants you to deliver that you don't know enough about, you know, so um, it, it does get really nuanced. But I think, again, like just with, like I was saying with Kara, I do think over time you develop this very embodied way to learn to, um, you know, just develop to have that humility walking into a room and, and you get to the point where you, like you'll start choking on your words because you can't you can't even talk that way anymore you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure oh well yeah. thank you so much that's really that's a great some great points to reflect on thank you thanks amanda okay i think joseph had his hand up next um thanks very much um so that was a very good presentation there faith learned a lot from it thanks very much for the perspectives um my question is, usually when you're having conversations around things like drought, things like water, these affect a lot of people, so people are paying attention. Um, when you're having science communications around things which are a bit more controversial, like genetically modified organisms, like COVID-19 vaccines, where usually people are suspicious, people are um, careful, people have questions about motive of the science communicators, 
Uh, any tricks in, in, in how to approach some of those? Do the ideas play same when you are dealing with some of those more controversial issues as you are dealing with the more common science communication topics like drought and water shortage and all? <laughs> Well, Joseph, thank you. And it's funny that you should say that because in California, drought, I mean, we, we literally have drought denialists um, that like water, there are, there are very few less controversial issues in California than water. So I will say that's, you know, that's where I've sort of sharpened my teeth is on dealing with one of the most controversial issues you could ever deal with, which is water and drought in California. Um, and where there's a lot of money politics, um, it's, it's a very deeply entangled issue. And so I do think a lot of the same, the same things apply. I will say, um, I have, I participated a little bit in, a, I think there was a National Academy's um, conference, online conference, a couple of days talking about, you know, what people were terming as more sort of like basic science communication. And a lot of the same kinds of tools started to come up. And so I don't, I, I haven't spent enough time dwelling in, um, in some of the, the issues around topics that are maybe not as day to day. So I think I, I, so controversy aside, I think I'm dealing with already very controversial issues and those tools apply. That's where they came from. That's where I arrived at how to work on some of this stuff. Um, but in but you're right in terms of people experience drought, say, on a day to day basis in a way that they may not be thinking about genetic engineering in, in, in the same way or encountering it in the same way. And so I think some of the challenges there are more. It, at least what I've seen are more around forecasting potential problems, right? Um, or dealing with um, people's just uh, background information about what might what might be happening. But my sense is that the tools are still very similar. Like you still, you know, want to take this idea of listening, right? Like very, very seriously. Um, and, and kind of, you know, the, the quotes that I gave about water where people are saying, you know, in a certain way, we want to just ignore the Ill, the illogical components of say uptake of, of uh, drinking recycled water, but those, we can't ignore those illogical components. We can't ignore that, that those emotions are a lot of information and very uh, a strong set of information. So to me, it's, it, I haven't seen a huge divergence of what I would think of as, as sort of the tools of um, dealing with, with, the kinds of topics that you're working on. Um, I, I, I'm sure I could be challenged by people who um, have a very nitty gritty sense of, of where the rub is on some of these issues, but so far I haven't, I haven't seen a huge divergence. So I have, I have a question. Um, and you've, you've touched on this quite a bit, actually, especially with Amanda's question. Um, <clears throat> But what role does ego play in the way we used to communicate or, or historically have communicated science and, and where you think it needs to go? And I, I feel like a lot of the shift is not so much in our skill set at saying words to people, but how we place ourselves in the conversation. Yeah, so that's a, that's a tough issue. Um, so I do think a lot of science communication work and the way that people were trained in it, particularly in sort of the early 2000s, was very much in service of our own ego as scientists. <laughs> um, just, you know, a lot of focus was placed on being sort of, you know, giving a TED talk, kind of that that um, imparting of wisdom to a generic sort of audience in a lot of ways. So a lot of the people who have attended science communication trainings over the last 20 years, that's that's the sense that you get is that you're there to, to sort of perform scientific authority, right? Um, and I think part of what had started to happen, I know it was certainly true for me, was um, my experience of being granted scientific authority is vastly different than say somebody else's, right? So, so for example, a lot of the, the senior white men that I work with are granted a kind of authority that I will literally never, ever receive, ever. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that in and of itself tells me something about um, what purpose, I guess, <laughs> that kind of communication was serving. And, um, and so that, you know, that was one of the main things that made me start to just question the utility of that 
approach. Um, because if, if some of us are just literally never, ever going to make it, um, what, what is the point? Right. And so I think what, what you've seen then is, is a lot of people who are trying to approach science communication in a totally different way and be validated for that. And so what I'm, what I'm also saying is that kind of work has been existent the entire time. Look at the cooperative extension system, for example, it's been around a hundred years. People have been communicating science in this very different, um, non, uh, you know, non-celebrated sort of way. It's just the day-to-day work. It's what you do. And I'm trying to sort of get back to that. And, and yet I still think there's a lot of challenge to it. So for example, the national academies with the um, Eric and Wendy Schmidt foundation just announced last week that they're giving a um, they're, they're giving very fairly large um, science communication awards. They are only available to research scientists and journalists. Bizarre journalists for the most part, um, most, of the journalists I know will not accept the label of science communicator. They're journalists. They don't even want to be science communicators, from what I can tell. And then to sort of overlook the people who are actually doing science communication work in favor of, of giving awards to research scientists, like I still think we're really off the mark in understanding who does this work and sort of how how they're doing it. Um, I don't know if that got quite to your question there, Jennifer. <laughs> Put me back on track if I didn't. No, no, I think I think hearing that perspective was was what I was looking for. Uh, okay, Dylan, you have your hand up. Hi. Uh, so uh, thank you. This has been really interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask about what are some of the biggest, I guess, challenges that you tend to face in your day-to-day trying to, you know, communicate science? Yeah. So again, I would, I I would say at this point in my career, it's probably actually become a labor, it's really a labor issue. So I'm in an academic non-tenure track position that has to be renewed every two years. Um, And I am a very lucky science communicator, I would say, um, in the sense that I I have quite a bit of job security, I get paid adequately. um, And I would say many, many younger science communicators are facing issues where they're volunteering. Um, They are not actually employed at all. They might be employed on grants for three months or six months. Um, I know a lot of social scientists complain about the way they're brought into scientific projects. Science communicators are on an even lower rung than that. Like they're brought in to do 30 hours of work to sort of uh, get work, get a set of work out on social media, for example, without ever, ever having been involved in how that work got done. So I think, um, There's often a sense that, you know, anybody can do science communication work. Um, Let's hire a 22 year old intern and there's no actual professional work involved. And the point that I've been trying to make this entire time is to say that this work is actually really um, challenging. And because of the kinds of topics that people are working on, uh, that job precarity and the risk that they're taking and communicating about these issues are um, leaving people in very, very vulnerable states. And so um, I think for me at this point, uh, you know, I I could certainly talk about the day-to-day of just like the challenges of um, uh, trying to be able to write every day or having to deal with social media every day, uh, which is terribly exhausting in its own way. As someone who runs about eight different social media accounts, things like that, there is definitely the sort of day-to-day of the work that's really challenging. But I, what I find at this stage of my career most challenging is that I do not have the job security that I need to um, actually do the work that I really need to do to communicate on these very controversial topics. Oh, sorry, I was muted. Uh, so what do you think would be the best way to get, you know, to get the resources to the people who need them in terms of to to science communicators, you mean? Um, So I think there's a few different venues or or ways that I've been talking to people about this, one of which is I think we need to take science communication training seriously. Um, I am sort of arguing for a clinical training path within uh, science graduate programs where, um, you know, I I am contacted somewhat frequently by folks who are um, having to teach a science communication class uh, just because of whatever else they're teaching. And they, um, 
for the most part, have never been science communication practitioners and don't really understand the, the labor component. So I think starting as, say, within academia, let's just start there, to take those the training seriously, to take the job seriously as a job, um, and to say, for example, if you're a faculty member who's being asked to teach a science communication class, to advocate for that as an actual um, expertise that's needed in your department, not just something <laughs> that whoever can teach. Um, and then also to take the training component seriously by, you know, I think within graduate training to actually have immersive science communication experiences for people. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, I think just kind of starting to elevate the work as like a as a real job that requires real training and um, and protection. Um, I think we need to shift away from this idea of incentivizing faculty to be science communicators. There are more than more, more people than you can imagine who are totally willing to do science communication work if they are rewarded and protected for it. So why, why do we focus on getting people who don't want to do the work to do it? It's bizarre how much money goes into that. It's bizarre how much conversation goes into that. Like that alone, like just stop with the incentivizing. Um, You know, there's a bunch of changes, but obviously I feel pretty strongly about them. But I, I think it's just taking this work seriously as seriously as, as it needs to be taken, you know, like look at COVID if we had taken science communication seriously. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I guess I could keep, I could keep asking questions, but it was like we're at, the, at time. Uh, so I just want to thank everyone for coming. This has been really interesting, really good perspective to hear. Um, Faith, I'll send you the chat, but you have lots of, lots of positive praise in there um so (laughs) thank you again uh we will see this is the end of our time so we will see you next week and thank you very much for coming Uh, thanks everyone for the engaging conversation i really appreciate it